Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny. I'm Jen. I'm Kristen. And today we have a killer episode for you. It's a little bit of a knowledge sandwich, if you will. So last week, We sat down with two doctors in our Doctors versus Bankers episode, and today, as a follow-up, we're going to chat with two investors in the healthcare private equity space, not only talking about that segment of the investing community, but also answering the mountain of questions we've gotten from listeners who are doctors and want to pivot into the world of finance, but don't know how. And then following this episode, we're going to be airing the second half of our interview with these same guests to explain- Which actually came first- (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like it's a little bit, a little bit upside down, but that's fine. And we're going to explain project finance. And that's because that's the area that they both worked in during the first half of their careers. So awesome content here. And before we get started, just a friendly reminder that we are two lifelong friends with a combined 25 years of experience working and teaching on Wall Street. We're here to give you the skinny on the world's highest paying careers and answer all the questions that you've ever had about finance, but have been too afraid to ask. And so, Kristen, before we get started here, uh, today's the day after Valentine's Day, and I want to talk about, like, Valentine's Day. It's the stupidest holiday, but (laughs) yesterday morning at, like, 7 a.m., I get a text from your husband being like, Mm -hmm. any good restaurants in Princeton that I can go to for lunch? And I gave him, like, this whole recommendation of my favorite, like, farm table restaurant. And then he was like, what about pizza? Whatever. But I was like, by the way, John, did you do anything nice for your bride? Friendly reminder. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I got her chocolates or whatever. And then he didn't even take my advice, by the way. He went to a falafel place that I don't even think was there in 2006 when I was in college. (laughs) Oh, so funny. Wait, so since he was in Princeton, were you all alone last night? No, he came back. He flew back. uh, I think he got home around 6. And so he came home. It wasn't, I mean, like the, with, again, like kids, it's not really like there's anything. I mean, so we ate as our, you know. 18 month old? Oh my God, how old is she now? She was screaming her head off because oh, I'm she sorry. was tired and she didn't actually know. You know what it is? She gets FOMO. She doesn't like it when she feels like she's missing out. So we tried to put mm-hmm. her to bed and it took like over an hour. I mean, that's not oh. like her, but I think because John came home, he was traveling over the last few days. Yeah. And so he was down with the girls and she just felt like she was missing out. And as a third kid, I swear to God, her biggest fear is like just not being part of things. So she was mm-hmm. up there screaming and we we're finally like, you need to sleep, but okay, we'll take you out. And uh, ah, so, yeah. romance. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Like Charlotte was so cute this morning. My three-year-old, she's like, I want it to be Valentine's Day again. I was like, okay, like, well, Easter's coming up and there's more holidays coming. So just, just chill. My youngest calls it Valentine's Day Mm because he's like, I know the word Mm -hmm. time. I don't know Mm -hmm. the word time. I, as Um, a kid, that's what I thought it was. I used to call it Valentine's Day too. Yeah. And so so does does Charlotte. Yeah. I feel like that's daylight savings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Valentine's Day, the thought of going out to dinner with a bunch of people awkwardly being like, be romantic now is my worst nightmare. So Mm -hmm. we ordered food. My favorite thing to do when I'm just chilling on the couch is actually watching movie trailers. So Christian and I watched movie trailers for, we're both really excited after the Super Bowl for seeing the ad for the sequel to Twister. Twister. Yes. Yes. I want to see that. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, So we watched not only the new ridiculous trailer, but also the 1996 trailer, which is superior Uh, because back mm -hmm. in the day, they used to have the voice in the trailers. Yeah. Like in a world where. Yes. And it was like the same guy and everything. And it's funny, at some point, there was like a consultant who went to the movie industry and was like, listen, ditch the voice, just make it a music video. But what ended up happening is they stopped making movies with plots. They just made movies that do really well as music videos and trailers. And the movies now suck. And there's no (laughs) plot. Right. But the trailers are great. And I'm like, yeah. bring back the dude with the voice so that you have oh, to come funny. up with a uh, lucid enough John, plot for the movie. No. So John has like a very good announcer's voice. And he used to always get told by people. They were like, you should be you should be the announcer person, <laughs> the voice. And like, because everyone it's like Morgan Freeman, I feel like is the voice. But anyway, John has like a good voice for narrating. Well, he'd be out of a job in today's environment. So pretty smart Seriously. that he didn't take that advice. I know, that right? guy is clearly on the beach somewhere. Okay. No, so now the new thing, the new thing is the robot voice. It's the, the automated like voice. Siri voice. Yeah. In a world <laughs> with yes. yeah, yeah, tornadoes yeah. and asteroids. Uh, okay. No. So anyways. <laughs> no, 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 no. Before we, no, in the, in the robot voices you could choose from, fun fact, they have like vampire voice and monster voice and it's like there's a woman and a man and then all these other random icons of like who wants a vampire voice? That's an option. I don't know. I mean, listen, we're in a very specific social media niche. There's something for everyone. So I guess there's vampire influencers out there who need to do vampire robot voices. The Seriously. things that you learn in your specific niche. And that's actually something mm-hmm. we're going to touch on today. So with that yeah. weird segue, um, yeah, yeah, Kristen, yeah. listen, since mm-hmm. we spliced out the portion of this episode where we actually <laughs> learn about the bios and early careers of our guests. Yeah. For next mm-hmm. week, can mm-hmm. you please introduce our sure. incredible speakers today? Yeah, so we're bringing on Raul Kulas and Julie Yoon, who both were my former co-workers mm-hmm. at Morgan Stanley. I worked with Raul in Project Finance and uh-huh. Julie in Converts, and mm-hmm. they then came together after <laughs> I left. But uh, they're just such amazing people. Raul it was seriously one of the best teachers and mentors like I've worked with. Mm-hmm. Julie was just an incredibly talented analyst and, and a friend. And they went on to partner together along with this other fellow named David Albert, who happened to also be the uh, MD when I was in project finance. He was the head of the group at the time. And you'll actually mm-hmm. get to meet us in the next episode. He like popped in to say hi and uh, actually had some really <laughs> helpful descriptions of certain things. Yeah, but yeah, so today we're going to talk about the landscape of healthcare investing. And to start... Raul and Julie didn't come from a healthcare background, rather a project finance background at Morgan Stanley. And then they went to Carlisle where they were investing in more of like infrastructure. So it was more infrastructure investing before spinning off to start their own firm, 1585 Healthcare, which for those of you who don't know, is actually a nod to Morgan Stanley's headquarters in New York City. So it is 1585 Broadway, where Jed and I spent quite a long time. 
But uh, so yeah, so (laughs) we're so excited to chat with them. And so let's bring them on. So to kick off this episode, Raul and Julie, how did you guys navigate the switch from project finance and infrastructure investing at Carlisle, by the way, one of the most prestigious private equity mega funds, Mm -hmm. um, because Wall Street, you tend to work in a specific sector for a while, you become an expert in that sector. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes you get pigeonholed a little bit. And so switching into an area that is totally new, that you haven't worked in before, especially for you guys, you were in there for like 15, 20 years, or David, I think it was probably like more like 30. I mean, that can't have been easy. So how the heck did you guys pull that off? Like walk us through what you actually did to make the switch from project finance and infrastructure investing, then to Carlisle, to then starting your own healthcare fund. Yeah, I think we knew we wanted to do something different. We The theme we picked was aging meaningfully and investing in businesses that did that for older adults passion project for me, but I know David and Julie were excited for it as well. Why was it a passion project for you? For me, I, you know, I guess to distill it down to 30 seconds, I was very close to my great-grandmother and she ended up dying in a nursing home, which in India is not common at all. And for me, that was just a big regret that I was just too young to yeah. really understand it. And that had become sort mm-hmm. of like a, a real rallying call to me to say, hey, that has to change. You know, that's going to be an issue people face more. I come to the U.S. and that's commonplace. Everyone is dying in nursing yep. homes alone. That's that's just didn't feel right. And so that had been a continuous area of focus for me. Got it. You know, you, you said, you know, how do we make the move? And I, I my answer was ignorance. And I, I truly believe that if we knew what we know now, we may not have had the courage to do what we did. <laughs> and, yeah. So initially, when we did this, firstly, the timing, we wound up our fund, handed it over to our successors 2019 with the idea of looking at businesses and healthcare services specifically designed for older adults. So for six months, we spent time literally just meeting with older adults, talking to them, understanding the problems they face, just doing true market research, almost akin to if someone was starting a a startup in a certain area, they'd go and talk to their customers, if you will. That's what we did. And it was wonderful. We had a great time, but then the pandemic hit and we were like, wait a minute, we finally decided, okay, we're going to invest in home health and hospice as two businesses that are both profitable, but also meaningful. And then the, the pandemic hits, yeah. we're like, wait a minute, we're in August of 2020, we're close to closing our first deal. And then we're like, wait a minute, we're going to, we're going to send people into older adults' homes <laughs> with no vaccines. Oh, and, God. You know, we could see the headline, like three former Carlisle partners kill a bunch <laughs> of old people in Louisiana or Texas, right? <laughs> So we're like, whoa, we got to pull back on that. Let's dial that back. And we said, we're all isolating in New York. Why don't we start looking at healthcare? Because one of the consistent themes we found for every older adult is healthcare was one of the most important things that they were focused on. And the complexity of the healthcare sector led us to believe that it's one of the rare moments in time when you actually had a couple of things going on. The spending on healthcare is so out of whack in the US that you had a chance to save money by actually giving a better product and service while the investors can actually make money. So it's a very rare trifecta. And I think that will continue for a long period of time. And that dovetailed nicely into what we were thinking of impact with also sort of an idea of being profitable. Can you explain that in layman's terms when you say delivering a better product that somehow delivers returns for investors and also improves the lived experience sure. and quality of care that people are getting? Like, what, what does that mean? I think in order to kind of explain that, I think we need to discuss two different models. Um, Mm -hmm. in healthcare industry, where right Mm -hmm. now the industry has been shifting from what is called fee-for-service model to Mm value-based care. And fee-for-service is where providers, healthcare providers are reimbursed for each service, each visit, Mm -hmm. 
by patient and, you mm-hmm. know, it's visit regardless of health outcomes. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really incentivize providers to keep patients healthy. Actually, in fact, it does exact opposite thing. Yep. They get rewarded for quantity of services, quantity of visits that patients come. So mm-hmm. it can lead to higher costs. So mm-hmm. unlike fee-for-service, value-based care uh, incentivizes providers based on the quality of care instead mm-hmm. of quantity of care. So in other words, value-based care would pay a fixed amount to a provider to manage the care of that patient. And that kind of what makes primary care physicians much more important in the context of value-based care. Because the preventative care results in fewer expensive procedures down the line. Exactly, exactly. So how they are measured by payers is really how much preventive care that they provided to members and whether there was any preventive emergency visits or hospital admissions or readmissions. So those are the things that the payers are very focused on. And the payers are basically rating each of these doctors on like a scorecard of saying, hey, based on our analysis of your preventative care, you like because you're proving a negative, right? You're proving that you through this action didn't let someone have a heart attack down the line or didn't lead to this chronic condition, right? So there there are two things. One is, of course, what could be avoidable. And it's Mm -hmm. a lot of the data analytics that payers do. Uh They look at all those year visits and what could have been avoided or not based on why the patient went and what was their uh-huh. you know, medical history. So they mm-hmm. do have a lot of data analytics going on there. And then also there's in terms of preventive care, whether those members went for wellness visits or whether they did HbA1c testing or mammogram testings or medication adherence. All those things, they look at how member did over course of year. The payer in this example, is this the the insurance company or is this the insurance companies? Yes. Got it. Yeah. And so where does your capital get deployed in this process? Maybe even just echoing what Julie said. So setting the stage for where healthcare is right now, for the last 30 years, you've had a system which says you get paid more if you see a patient more. Hospitals want their beds filled. So effectively, they're not getting people healthy, they're keeping people in. And I'm not saying that hospitals and there's no nefarious grand design where people are secretly trying to get people sick. Right. I don't think, but... We'll put our tinfoil hats on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's more just a question of when you incent people in a certain way, things get driven in a certain way. So people are not really thinking about what healthcare outcomes are. It's how do you get as many patients in? How do you keep seeing patients? How do you keep doing this and that to maximize revenues? Value-based care flips it and says, you know what? If you're a doctor, eventually down the road, you've got 100 patients for these 100 patients, you're going to get paid a total lump sum dollar amount. Mm-hmm. And then you manage it. If the costs go up, that's your problem. The costs go down, that's your, your profits. Got it. And they've got enough data, to Julie's point, to, to accurately measure over a population what it would cost. However, the doctor mm-hmm. then has the judgment to be able to say, you know what, this patient uh, you know, has multiple chronic conditions. So obesity, diabetes, you know, COPD. That person needs a special diet, for example. Uh So the doctor can start working to say, okay, it's not so important that he keeps coming in or she keeps coming in to see me or going for a bunch of tests. It's more important that they focus on exercise, on eating right, sleeping right. So the doctor can actually maybe do certain interventions. And that whole realm is very exciting. And it's called social determinants of health, where you have different things Mm -hmm. that could actually come in to help the patient that's above and beyond just their medical condition. So it's a long way of saying Mm -hmm. that we're going from this very primitive model of saying, go to the doctor, 
and get treated and then you may never see the doctor again right. to a continuum of care where you try to say, how do you realistically manage a person's yeah. care? And that can be done to Julie's point through a primary care physician, but it's going to take probably 10 years to really get there where one person is your point of contact to say, hey, you've got thyroid levels are slightly off, but you also have you know, this issue. That person can sit down yeah. and say, okay, let me interpret all the specialists it almost sounds like it's sort of a combination of, and you know, I'm not not exactly like functional medicine, but like you're you're trying to essentially have the doctor not be, and I've heard this term, it's like the sick care system. It's not a healthcare system. Like right. we basically are treating sick people. We're not trying to help people not get sick. Right. And so hats off to you guys because like you do see that the whole system is so broken because first of all, you know, we had this conversation with my sister-in-law again, pediatric ER doctor. Mm. And she was like, part of the problem is you have a lot of people who, by the way, can't afford healthcare. So they come into the ER because I mean, the great thing about America is you show up to the ER, you can't pay for healthcare. Guess what? It doesn't matter. Right. You're going to get saved, right? You're going to get mm. treated. But you also have people that are coming in that maybe they can't even get a primary care. I, I have to wait a year to see my primary care doctor here in Massachusetts. Right. I can't even get in. But if they can't afford, they come in because she says she'll see people that come because they want to get Tylenol. Or free pregnancy tests, you said. Free pregnancy tests, right? Those are not cheap, but you go to the ER, oh, you get a free one. Now, yes, you're waiting in line and there's some guy with an emergency, but now you have to see this patient and all they want is a pregnancy test. There's so many places where it's like little things could go a long way. I mean, my sister-in-law said she had some idea where it's like you sit a person in the ER it's a little whatever. It's a hut. You can get some college kid to manage it. They give out condoms. They give out pregnancy tests. They give out Tylenol, right? Like you can walk right in. Like a lemonade like, stand. Like a lemonade <laughs> stand, except for you get it for free. But then you don't have to yeah. go through and see the ER doctor for that. I mean, there's so many little things where the system is being used in the wrong way. You see that functional medicine doctors are starting to almost like fill that space because people want right. that and they're paying out of pocket for this. But it's unfortunate that you have these medical doctors that know what they're doing they could do this. Like Anyway, it just, I love that. I think that's like such a, you know. You know. One thing to note is value-based care model sounds amazing. And I think it makes sense. But realistically, I think creates a lot of burden to providers, especially for independent physicians, community doctors who do not have big staff or fancy technology to give all the real-time data. Yeah. So I think that's where we can be helpful. And this gets to, to Jen, your point on how do we make money? What's our investments? Mm -hmm. So we are looking at any business or service that invests uh, or can provide services to either doctors, primarily independent doctors who are doing this care. To Julie's point, they don't have enough resources. So one example would be a care management platform that we're building out where we actually will follow up with the patients to make sure, did you understand what the doctor said? Are you going to pick up your medications or why aren't you picking up your medications? Oh, I get those questions all the time after every single visit. It's like, did you understand what the doctor was saying to you in plain English? I'm like, Huh? <laughs> and, and you know what? You, you'll be shocked at the number of people who don't pick up their medications because they didn't understand. Wow. Yeah, because the thing is, the, the demographic on this phone call might be very like focused on getting answers. We, we know how to ask the questions we need to. But there are a lot of folks that consume healthcare, the vast majority, that get five to seven minutes to the doctor. The doctor speaks quickly. They feel insecure. They don't want, they don't want to ask. They don't want to sound stupid. They get all these meds. They don't really have a chance to understand what each med does. So a lot of people just don't pick up the meds. So we will call right. and have the pharmacy send them, explain to them. And that is one of the biggest focus areas for population health, which is when people say, let's let's manage 
a large number of people having their meds, they're going to probably be healthy versus if you suddenly have a lot of people not taking your meds, you'll end up in the ER or you might have very adverse reactions. Right, right, right. That totally makes sense. So that's one example of for care management, but we're also doing things where we're doing billing and coding services for independent physicians. We're also in the process right now of trying to acquire effectively 10 clinics that provide healthcare to the Medicaid population in New York City. So our view is anything that gives us an opportunity to deliver care to patients in the Medicaid or Medicare populations, we think that that will eventually both be profitable, but also we can do such a better job at increasing the quality of care. You know, we hear about Medicaid, but if you're on Medicaid and you're consuming healthcare, it kind of sucks. You're triple booked, you're busy, but you get into a doctor's office, you might have to wait for an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Yep. People are disrespectful. They treat you badly. There's very little respect there for the Medicaid population. So our views: can we mm-hmm. find some way to actually reduce cost spend, but giving them a product? And so when I say a product, meaning can I walk into a doctor's office that's clean? It's nice. It's it's not like mm. falling apart and dilapidated. Yeah. There's actually a nice waiting area with you know the the normal things that we would expect in a doctor's office, if you will. Yeah, I want to watch Joanna Gaines and <laughs> yeah. you know flipping houses on TV for 20 minutes before I get in to see my doctor question for you guys. When you think about these underserved populations and you think about this elderly population that you're both helping in in tandem, do those two go hand in hand? Are they separate solutions? Like, What do you think is the most impactful thing that's happening there? So they're very different populations. And I will tell you, when we first started on this healthcare journey four years ago, I probably would not have been as focused on the differences. Now it's sort of Mm -hmm. completely different. And to put it in, in layman's terms, it's Uh, If you think about the focus of somebody who's 75, a lot of it is, hey, I'm retired. I will plan my doctor's visit as a primary event on my social calendar. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. My dad's physical therapy is like the (laughs) big to-do every day. It's like a social activity. I will not miss it. That's it, right? He gets dressed up. It's a big thing. But now you go to the Medicaid population where it could be, I'm just picking a person, you know, generally to be on Medicaid, you're making close to or below poverty levels. You generally have... Mm -hmm young kids, you're working two jobs, you are struggling to make ends meet, guess what? You may not even have a smartphone. So when you think about how difficult it is to engage with that population, also just think just think back to even when you're in your 20s, you're not going to go to the doctor unless there's a problem. Oh my God, it was a it was a, a huge event for me to book a doctor's appointment when I was on the desk. It was like, you can't leave for that. And, you know, it would be like to get a vaccine or something that was critical. Yeah. And it would be an international That's incident, right. <laughs> you know, especially because every single doctor, too, is like on the Upper East right. Side. And you got to get cross town in the middle yeah. of the day. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I was getting like the HPV vaccine or whatever, because it had just come out and it was three shots. And I would book like a three hour window. And honestly, if I had time left over, I'd go home because I lived right across the street from the <laughs> office and like watched Dawson's Creek. But anyways, neither here nor there. <laughs> But yeah, no, so I completely can relate as someone who came from immense privilege, working a very well-paid job with excellent health insurance, how difficult it was for me to manage any kind of preventative care. I cannot even imagine. Yeah, and it's it's also just complicated for everyone in terms of managing. If you have a condition, and a perfect example is long COVID, a lot of people have had symptoms, but no doctor could diagnose it. So you were sent to a pulmonologist, a cardiologist, a allergist, uh-huh. an immunologist, and then they aren't talking. So you're doing a bunch of tests. They don't talk to each other. The left confused. hand doesn't talk to the right. right. And so I think there's just a lot of ability to save money while delivering a better service to people. Yeah. So if you just had somebody call you and say, look, I'm going to try and distill down all these different specialist reports, all these tests. Yes. Here's what I think you need to focus on. It becomes a much more digestible process for the consumer of healthcare. 
You need like a GC for your health who's talking to all the independent subs. That is exactly right. That's the way to think about what I think we're hoping to have our primary care physicians be eventually. And, you know, it's interesting because I had a a health issue and I thought I was going to need like hundreds of thousands of dollars of like fertility treatments to have kids. And it turns out, oh no, all I need to do is a lifestyle Mm. shift, like work out less, eat more, boom, this is an issue that I hope like in healthcare is people are starting to be more aware of. But like, I feel like the lifestyle mm-hmm. thing is also not looked at as much. The, the meds and interventions are not always the thing that's needed, but it depends like if you're looking at this one thing, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So in, in talking about this, that's the analogy. You know, one of the questions you said about with doctors, right? Like how could they make a transition? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The one thing we kept going back and forth is exactly that phrase, which is one of the things is that the medical system overall and doctors in particular, you know, if you have a hammer, everything's a nail. And I think part of the yeah. issue just in practicing medicine right now is if you've, been, if you've been trained and this is a medical treatment, it's very hard for the average doctor, unless you're truly curious, unless you truly want to keep keeping up and changing your thinking, which is hard to do, especially every doctor in general has a little bit of an echo chamber of how awesome they are. Because, you know, if you're if you're in a clinic, everyone around you is like, oh my God, the doctor, he, he, he or she's, that, that's, the, that's the person. <laughs> and so they start thinking like, I'm infallible. I, you know, I, I am the ultimate content carrier. So it it takes a special person, it takes a special, and not to say that they're not amazing doctors who do this, but a lot of doctors feel nervous about saying, hey, I'm supposed to be the expert on everything. And they don't keep current, they don't really want to challenge their way of thinking. Yeah. And how's, how does this relate into moving into finance if you're an MD? It's actually a very similar concept, which yeah. is the single biggest thing. Doctors who make the switch successfully are incredibly successful. Doctors who don't get held back by a very similar problem across the board, which is if you're making a move from being an MD to being an investor or just any part of finance, you have to understand that there's sunk cost in your medical degree, but it's sunk cost. You might get a little bit of a benefit, Mm -hmm. but you're you're learning a new skill, how to be an investor. And just because you did a class in surgery or because you did a class in psychology or whatever it is, does not mean that you can avoid learning the the nitty gritty. You know, the the analogy would be, you still got to, you know, become an an Excel ninja, right? You you need to be able to do that. You need to be able to understand how to How do they learn those skills coming from that background, though, unless they're going to be 35 years old starting out as a first-year analyst in the investment banking division of a bank? That's a great question. And I think, Julie, you had a... No, I mean, I I don't have an answer to that, but I think... (laughs) You got a point, though. I do have a point. (laughs) I think in our current position, like, we constantly look for doctors, physicians that we can partner with, you know, to start any of the initiatives, right? Yeah. So even when we're, you know, acquiring these 10 clinics that, you know, Rahul mentioned, we do need to partner with doctors who can share our vision and who can run Mm -hmm. business. It it is practice, but it's a a business at the end of the day. And I think it's hard to find the doctor who has both, you know, clinically, you know, doing what they do well, but also having that business mindset. That actually brings up a really, I think, interesting point, which is when you do this, are doctors getting the upside? Because this is one of the things that I've heard from Nisha. She was talking about it. She's like, I know like I'm going into pediatric ER. I'm doing it. It's my calling. I'm not doing it for the money. I'm going to earn what I'm going to earn. If it's whatever, $180,000, $250,000, whatever a year. But at the same time, she's like, I don't love it then when I hear that the hospital administrator is making $10 million. Or if the private equity firm owns us, that they're making $10 million off of my altruism and and making significantly less. So are you guys thinking about partnering with doctors so that they do get some of the upside? Because we are at this almost like crisis crossroads where we don't have enough people who want to be doctors. We don't have enough people who are staying in the field. 
doctors need to make a, a good living, right? Uh, they, they need to be able to at least at the very minimum afford a the right size apartment or a home, the, be able to send their kids to the right schools. That, that should be expected for a group of people who study uh, and have loans well in excess of the average mm-hmm. population. I think the two things we're doing, the, the first is when you look at one of our primary companies, the goal really, the mission there is keeping independent physicians in practice. Yeah. And we think that, that a big part of why doctors also don't make as much money as they can is the ones who do go into private practice, they are a doctor, they're a, the HR person, they are the landlord, yeah. they are you know, yeah, like yeah, fixing yeah. the broken toilet, they're like scheduling. And so that part of it is, it's, it's kind of crazy because they leave a lot of money on the table. So part of what we're doing is helping workflows and helping doctors with independent practices change that so they can make more money. Yeah. The second thing is, Healthcare and doctor medicine is probably one of the only parts of the the whole ecosystem where people in the first few years of their career, everywhere else, they, they're moving towards more entrepreneurship, more freedom, more schedule flexibility, smaller companies, less managerial structure. Guess what most doctors do? They graduate from their fellowship or their residencies and they go to big hospital systems where they're, t- yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost like the equivalent mm-hmm. of saying, if you guys graduated the great schools you graduated from and said, I want to go and work at GM in the 70s, right? Like, I want to be, la- <laughs> yeah. I want to have seven layers of administration above me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, that's another criticism is, especially during the pandemic, they let go of jobs where it's like, they would have people that would help write up the notes and stuff. So then like the doctors are doing right. that all at the end of the day, after their shift, after they've worked an all-nighter, you know, now they have to like write all the stuff up and they have to summarize it and put it into the system. And like, right. you know, then they're doing research on their off days. But again, like the hospital, they have have whatever the policies are. And there's all these, you know, red tape and bureaucracy and all that kind of fun stuff. And, you know, the other thing that I just found so fascinating talking to these people was that the more prestige that there is at whatever hospital you're at, the less they're going to pay you. Because it's like, you should be so lucky to work here. Listen, I learned that at Goldman. (laughs) I I remember... My analyst years, I I was shocked when I went to Morgan Stanley, how much more, you know, Morgan Stanley was paying (laughs) And I was like, wow, but I thought Goldman was the, was the best. No, no, Goldman convinced you mm-hmm. that they were the best if you were an employee right. there. And you were really happy Funny. about it. And you kept saying, high-fiving everyone, saying, I'm at Goldman, I'm at Goldman, not realizing that you're subsidizing <laughs> yeah. yourself. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's too funny. Like I said, I'm like so excited how this like ties back to that conversation we had where I had said to Bella, I'm like, how come I hear all the time about these doctors? You look at Terry Dubrow, who's like in his, what, 25, $50 million mansion in Beverly Hills. How is he earning that? You know? And, you know, she's like, well, it's private practice, but like there is the entrepreneurship aspect. Like you are running a business. You now have to take the leap of leaving, having the actual salary and all that kind of fun stuff that you have to actually make that leap. Right? Yeah, I, I think th- th- there's definitely, you can make a ton of money if you're in the right specialty in private practice or even within, specialty, yeah. even in a hospital system. If you are a, a certain kind of surgeon that does very specific population and, and procedure set, you're, you're going to make a lot of money. Um, but I think that in general, one of the things that holds people back is taking the leap to say, I can set up my own practice and know how to make money. And I think in some ways, that's what we're doing, which is we're saying, look, you come and practice the clinical part of, of what you need to do. We can't do that, but we can help you uh, ensure that you don't lose money because you know you're trying to do everything, and then we can set you up for success. Especially now with value-based care, if you were a primary care physician, you were making no money the last 20 years, right? Very minimal amounts of money, unless you were an entrepreneur and you built up practices or whatever have you. Now we think that primary care physicians can finally have that duality of making money but also being mission-driven. And I, I, I don't know if one of you had mentioned someone, uh, but was it? Kristen, your sister-in-law, the pediatric, yeah, pediatric a calling. Yeah. So my sister, same thing. She's a psychiatrist. She's got a calling. And it is hilarious because I keep telling her, hey, just quit and let's join us and we'll, we'll start something. <laughs> and she looks at me like I've just tried to bribe her. 
And you know, she just looks at me like, oh, what? Like, that's just, yeah. I, I wouldn't even think about doing that yeah. because like I'm mission driven all the way, which is beautiful. Right. And, and I'll say in one of our businesses, we have, you know, we work with several thousand doctors and it is shocking to me how mission driven the vast majority are because they're independents, they're there, they're serving their local communities, they know. One story is we walked in, this woman probably in her early 70s is the doctor, and I said, okay, can we talk about your patients? You know, we get a lot of data from the insurance company, we wanted to like, make sure that you're organized. She's like, okay, go ahead. So I'm like, do you want to open up your EMR, your, your electronic medical record, and pull up names? She's like, no, read the names out. So I read the first name, and she's like, oh, yeah, he hasn't been here three years. I read the second name. <laughs> you know, she needs to lose 10 pounds, I keep telling her. And we would go down like 300 names and she knew every name and when they last visited. Uh-huh. And it was just this amazing thing. So there's hope, right, for the healthcare system, which is there are these really mission-driven, wonderful people. We just need to join the dots to allow them to actually make a fair living, fair wage for what they're doing, and also get more mm-hmm. people, the younger generation, to say, we want to do it. We don't want to make it so onerous. Yeah. And that's kind of, frankly, one of the primary investment theses we have at 1585 right now is helping independent physicians practice in a more meaningful way. And so just to circle back to the path to move from being a medical doctor to someone who's in the investing field, it sounded like kind of the the critical role there is akin to being an operator in a company, in a portfolio company for a conventional private equity firm, and then moving into the investing space, that there's someone who's working on the entrepreneurial or the business aspect of medicine, as well as being a practitioner, who can then potentially make the leap. Am I interpreting that correctly? So maybe I'll just I'll sort of zoom out for a second and say that if you're a medical doctor, clearly you have half the skills that you need to be successful in investing, which is hardworking, organized, focused, curious, you know, the soft skills, right? What's missing is content. Like, do I know all those different things? Reps right? of building models. Exactly. Now, here's the thing. If you're a doctor and you're coming in and your 35, 36 chances are going in as an analyst doesn't make sense. Will you become an excellent mm-hmm. ninja? Probably not. However... And this is a point that actually Julie made to me when we were talking about some of our doctors. You don't have to know the, the details of the account, the balance sheet to be good with numbers. And so in some mm-hmm. ways, I would tell a doctor trying to transition into an investing role, pick your niche first. So if you want to say, I want to do healthcare services, really understand the macro. Yeah. Right. And then when you're looking at numbers, you can take some quick courses and learn the basics. But what you're really looking at is, does it make sense to me? How is this business making money? These are just basic blocking and tackling on the investor side. Any investor would say, okay, how do you become an investor? You learn the finance stuff, but it really is asking questions. How does this company make money? What are the risks involved? How do we think it's going to grow? What are the challenges? Just very macro questions. One of the things that hold back doctors a lot is since they are 35, 36, maybe 33, they come into this new area and there's a huge amount of, you know, hammer nail kind of a construct where it's like, I'm a doctor. So I know, I know that. I'm going to try and find ways to loosely fit this in. The, the number of times I've heard a doctor say, I'm a doctor, so therefore, and they'll say something that's completely unrelated to being a doctor, right? <laughs> so it's almost like this fear, right? And I, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's no judgment. If I was a doctor, spent 13 years studying it, and I'm, I'm now transitioning into a new thing, it's scary. And what I would just say is that the yeah. most successful doctors are the ones who approach it with beginner's mind. And what I mean by that is just truly, I can ask questions because I'm not an expert. And it's yeah. actually valuable mm-hmm. to do that because it's not yeah. complicated. And what I find is a lot of doctors are drawn to, like, say, life sciences or pharma. Like, oh, I'm going to invest in drug discovery. Uh-huh. Here's the thing, right? So we don't do any of the investments in life sciences or, or pharma. But I will tell you, I don't need to have a doctor on staff. What I would do is I would use any one of the expert networks to speak to the 10 deep content experts, the researchers in that field, the doctors, MDs, PhDs, and I'll talk to 10 of them and I'll get this really great nuanced way of understanding it. 
So I, I don't need to hire somebody who knows that because even if they're an MD, eight of those 12 years may be irrelevant completely to the specific drug. But that doctor could be yeah. incredibly powerful in terms of the role if they said, I'm not the expert, but I'm going to talk to these 10 experts and synthesize yeah. and then explain to my non-medical yeah. group, here's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Here's the lever that moves this. Here's the, uh, exactly. Exactly. So, Here's the intuition So I think the, the MDs who want to move into finance have to understand what do they want to do, understanding that they're not going to be able to, to lever the vast majority of their previous content, but they would be excellent in investing because that's what they do. They're diagnosing problems. They're curious. They're studying. All those things make them great investors. And what we found is the people, whether it's entrepreneurial or investment, the ones who actually make the transition and are successful, they tend to be very successful. And then there's a huge number of people who sort of rest on the, I'm an MD. And that actually gets you somewhere, right? Uh-huh. Which is you, most healthcare funds like saying to their investors, oh, you know, we have an MD. We have an MD. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we have people right? who speak your language. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. The, the truth of the matter is that to, to me, it feels a little bit like if you are curious, you know, there's a, the founder of City MD, Rich Park. He's just such a smart guy. He's an MD. I love City MD, um, by the way. Yeah, it's great. And But if you talk to him, I can assure you, you would have no idea that he's a doctor. You think he's just a straight up, super intelligent, focused investor because he just jumps in and asks you a bunch of questions. And you wouldn't think like, yeah. hmm, I wonder which year of medical school he learned this in. You'd say, oh, he's just <laughs> super practical. He's right. super smart. He asks questions. And it's just, it's great because he's an example of, he didn't say because I didn't study a balance sheet, because I'm not an Excel ninja. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is I probably last built a model myself in probably, I don't know, 2010. But yeah, me. I, I was going to say 2010. <laughs> in reality, in reality after you joined, Kristen, I probably didn't build a model. <laughs> <laughs> Ju- but you showed me how. <laughs> Julie, we, we were in reflecting on this, it was a nice excess of Julie and me. We were laughing and talking about old times. And one of the things Julie looks at me, she's like, you know, I remember when you showed me some modeling. And I'm like thinking, oh, wow, I showed her some modeling. She's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I built this whole model. And then you one finger modeled some line. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that my skills had already fallen to just needing that, you know, like, you know, what one, one oh, single line. And she's like, she's like, no, but I learned a lot from that, though. Yeah, simplifying <laughs> the problem. You know, I think that's that's the key. The last question and the, the question we get day in, day out is, okay, I am coming from this conventional finance background, whatever it is, and I've got my big healthcare investing interviews coming up. What do I need to know to succeed in those interviews that's different from other exit opportunities that I'm interviewing for? Yeah. So I'll caveat by saying that since we, you know, for example, at Carlisle, I wasn't in the healthcare group, right? So I don't know mm-hmm. the details of the inner workings of what they do. And we are definitely unconventional in just how we've always built out our investment teams. We're not looking for, you know, a classic investor role. But I, I can't imagine it's it's not different, which is I think when you're interviewing for any healthcare role, healthcare is just too large and vast to try and be an all-encompassing expert. I don't think there's one investor who I've seen in healthcare who actually can speak truly in depth to life sciences, pharma, healthcare services, med tech. It's just so broad. You can have a loose picture. Yeah. So it, it really does come down to f- step one is you've got to pick an area. You're, if you say you're interested in healthcare, you can't say, oh man, I love drug discovery and I, you know, pharma. Oh, but I also love primary care. If you do that, then it's kind of like, uh-huh. it's too broad, right? Yeah. It's a little different from, you know, for example, in, in the energy space, you generally could have an appreciation for oil and gas and power those being the two big sectors that drove a lot of natural resources for a long time and speak competently on both of those to some extent. But I think in healthcare, you've got to know what you're passionate about and, and focus on, on that. And what skills do you guys test for specifically? 
I think if you are talking about the junior person who is looking for analyst and an associate level, I'm guessing the question mm-hmm. is for those junior yeah, sure. people. Yes. Yeah, let's start with the associate level. Yeah, then I think, you know, when I interview people and test them, I'm not really looking for industry knowledge or anything, you know, because they can actually learn everything on the job. Mm-hmm. If I'm hiring somebody coming in as analyst or associate, then their primary function would be model. Right, model mm-hmm. and putting presentation together. And the model, I think I expect the person to have a really good sense of numbers. And you can mm-hmm. learn how to build a model, but you know, you run the model. And I think the key thing is you look at the output and you need to have a sense of whether that number makes sense or not. Uh-huh. But if you don't have a sense of number, good number sense, then you don't even know whether that output makes sense or not. Then you don't know whether you made a mistake or not. Uh-huh, right. So, it's like, oh, look, my return is a 500%. Exactly, exactly. Is it? So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that's the key. I, I, I want somebody who they can even learn how to build a model on the job. But from the beginning, if you don't know how the numbers are going to work, you don't know whether you made a mistake, then it's very, very mm-hmm. hard to teach that skill set. So I think that's one thing I try to you know, gaze at. So basically like being able to sanity check and also like ask right. the question, does this make sense? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like if Those I could, if things. I could do this model with, okay, just in my head, what do I think the inputs are? What do I think right. the output's going to look mm-hmm. like? And then build it to see the granularity. Exactly. But like, exactly. Okay. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. You have to have a good number sense, right? You just have to know the, the model and, and that's for the analyst, but let's just talk even for, for associates. So you've got banking. Yeah. Let's assume that, you know, you're, you're going to have a basic level of that so much of success really comes down to, do you have a nice attitude about the work you're doing? Like, do you want to be here? Are you excited to be part of a team? Or are you going to make it transactional? So like, do I want to invest in you? And do you want to commit to, to, to us? And I think, you know, we did this at Carlisle fairly successfully. We're doing this now here where we very rarely hire people with a specific background. In fact, some of our superstars right now have zero finance background. They, they, we initially hired them for one of our operating companies and then we've moved them into a finance mm-hmm. role. But the fact is yeah. it's much easier to get somebody who's really smart and curious into that than vice versa. I think this is sort of a tangential yep. point, but I think it's an important one. You know, having made a number of moves in my career which don't rely on my previous knowledge, certainly the healthcare one where all of us did this, I think it's applicable to anyone at any stage, which is society always tells us, oh, you know, you did two years of healthcare investment banking, so your exit options are healthcare private equity or healthcare hedge fund or healthcare (laughs) long short. And the fact of the matter is if we're working with life expectancies and health being much better these days, you know, if you start your career at 22, you legitimately could work into your your like late 70s, early 80s. That's a 60 year career. Like look at Warren Buffett. He's he's what, 95? And the fact is if it's 60 years, what you've done in the first two to three years of your career, I mean, it's a rounding error in life and it's so unimportant. The main thing about the whole thing is your next thing shouldn't be based on what you did before. It should be what you want to do. Now, as soon as you step to left or right, people will tell you, no, 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 you got to go here and, and stay in your lane. Stay yeah. in your lane. Look, executive search firms, recruiters, headhunters, I know some very good ones, but the fact is that they're paid as brokers, right? They just want to get you to, mm-hmm. to, to take the job, make the match, they get their commission. It's not like they get their commission in two years if you work out and become really amazing, right? <laughs> and so they're going to scare you. They're going to use tactics subliminally to say, this is all you can get. Take this, go this way, go to your competitor, get 20% more. That's what you should do. But the truth of the matter is that now with the perspective of the last 20 years, and I look at all our different analysts and associates that we've worked with, we have somebody who did the classic routes, private equity, 
easy that we have a bunch of people who do private equity in other sectors. So we have a person who is in private equity and consumer retail. We have hedge funds, guys who've gone in and people have gone in who are now macro. We also have, you know, a couple of people who've gone operational. Actually, do you remember Aaron Telch, Kristen? Yeah. He's running a kombucha company that's doing, you know, he's growing it and he's doing an amazing job, right? That actually tracks. It tracks like, completely. He's an amazing shocked. guy. That, that, yeah. yeah. So like the, the, the options are endless and it actually has nothing to do with those two years. It, it has to do with the fact that like, if you are dedicated, hungry, motivated, you can actually make any change. It's just a question of when will you have the risk tolerance to yeah. make that change? Because a lot of people will stick around till they get fired. And the truth is like, mm-hmm. when they get fired, then that becomes the moment when they say, you know what? I'm done. Let me follow what I really want to do. And we had the privilege of choosing our exit from Carlisle. But the fact of the matter is that like, part of me wished that we were forced out like a few years earlier because I think- You would have gotten some nice steps. Yeah, and just, <laughs> just in general, I, I haven't yeah. met a single person who has not been better for being fired. I know it sounds horrible and it does not mean to minimize the grief, the sadness, the stress, all of that that will happen when you lose your job or you get fired. But I don't know a single person who doesn't come out stronger because it's closer to what they, they can then align and say, what do I really want to do? No, but it's true. And we talk about this too, that so many people are nervous about starting their career in the current environment where things feel volatile and the best careers are forged in volatility, right? Because that creates opportunity. And so similarly, when you have volatility in your own career path, it forces really hard decisions and it forces a lot of introspection and self-growth. And that's where, I mean, every single surprising turn of events that's happened in the course of both Kristen and my career, and frankly, in the careers of every single person we've spoken to, unequivocally, it's what led to the best opportunities and and, and the greatest success. Yeah, I mean, even the story you were telling me at the start of this, where did you guys think you'd have like this, you know, amazing social media presence and be doing videos and podcasts? It's amazing. And I've seen your stuff. It's hilarious <laughs> and educational and wonderful. And I'm, I keep telling my my junior folks that they've got to subscribe so they can learn some of the Excel hacks as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, and, and we're so grateful for you guys for participating in this. My biggest psychological theory is that people have midlife crises and are unhappy because they stop learning, yep. right? They reach the pinnacle of their career in whatever little narrow pigeonhole they've gotten themselves into. And they say, what else is out there? I guess I got to go shave my head and buy a Lamborghini. And <laughs> the reality is, is that we are so fortunate that we get to learn every single day. So this has been utterly fascinating for me. And we're so lucky that we get to learn from incredible teachers like you guys. And reconnect again. I still, it's like of the people that I worked with, you guys are just my favorites. I love you guys so much. You know much. we're going to listen to all the other podcasts to make sure you don't tell all your former coworkers that. No. <laughs> I mean, we have had my best my best friend in college and my sister-in-law on, so I'm obviously glowing about them, but uh no, I do teasing. not say this to everybody. No, Absolutely but, but not. <laughs> I legitimately mean it like there's not another person on this planet who would have gotten Julie to do this and probably not me as well. So it, we just love you so much, Kristen. And, and Jen, you've obviously got this Aww. amazing partner and you both are so synergistic and it's so exciting. I'm so lucky to be working with Kristen. We're so grateful for you guys. I'm so glad I finally get to put faces with the names. I, I know. Mean, I've heard about you guys for years and, <laughs> uh, and you guys did not disappoint. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 